you've just said Minecraft, right? So you picture a 10 year old enrolled in a public school who has a Minecraft education account. They have an avatar that walks around in the Minecraft education account, generating value for Microsoft through Minecraft. And then maybe that classroom last year had Class Dojo, which is a classroom behavior management app where the children are represented as avatars. And then they earn points and credit for good behavior um, in that classroom. And they're different, you know, then they can use that script to buy digital items for their avatar and that fulfills a consumer culture framework, right? And then maybe on the weekend and, and then, so say they, they move from middle school to high school and then they upgrades to Classcraft, which is the Google um, version. Well, maybe those other avatars don't go away. You're still kind of inhabiting whether or not you visit them or not. It's like those, you know, online pets. Do they die when you don't pay attention to them? Or like, are they still floating around out there? Like, you know, what, what are the different versions of yourself, right? You walk away from that and that lives, that continues to live in the micro, Minecraft space, whether or not you are actively doing it or you only visit it a couple times a month. Um, you already, we already have these avatar spaces in these logins that have probably different identity things. Maybe the, the middle, the elementary school or in the class dojo avatar um, evolves into the class craft Google behavior management app in the, the hero journey, right? That, that when they upgrade to middle or high school, they get a new behavior app. And that's different than the kid that you were when you were the class dojo app kid. Um, and they all have digital items and they're all being like, you know, commodified in that space. They're all generating data and profit. I'm, I consider it child labor, unwaged child labor and surveillance in this, in a, in a licensed educational setting, because that's what we've said. The new industrial paradigm is that we exist as digital assets and that we perform our compliance as digital assets. And so, like you, you mentioned, Neil Stevenson, I mean, his book, you know, I've, I, someone recommended to me, I haven't read all of them, but The Diamond Age. He was talking about virtual tutors in 1995 and globalization and all of the things that we're trying to navigate now. You know, was it coincidental that his parents were high power uh, scientists in the NSA belt of Maryland? I don't know. Like you tell me. Like then he consulted with Jeff Bezos and like he recently left being the head of uh, the head futurist of magically virtual reality, which is going to run these goggle sets to do the, the haptic robotics. So is science fiction fiction or is it real? Or can we hold space to contest the future even if it maybe hasn't fully manifested to say, what are the implications psychologically for our children if we're allowing this world to be built around them and legitimized through the educational process? Um, what does that future, that transhumanist future look like? And do we have a responsibility to you know, coming generations to throw up some question marks. And I'm not saying everybody has to agree with me. I'm just saying we actually have to look at it and have some really um, intentional conversations about what the implications are, because this is fundamentally military technology and the people who are building synthetic humans, that's Disney and the Army Research Lab. That's at USC Institute for Creative Technologies. They've been doing it for 20 years. They've been building synthetic people for 20 years to mine our consciousness, to feed it into a virtual world building scenario for signals intelligence. Because again, it's electrical engineering, it's programmable matter. At this point, oh, I'm sorry, the trash truck. 
they're still looking to program our physical material selves through CRISPR technology or what biotech or nanotech. There's a material point, but there's a parallel line where they're looking to engineer us as avatars and, and to trigger the, the singularity. So um, I'm just asking us to pay attention. I, I want, I want to go, I want to go further into the, where all this goes and the sing, singularity, but first I think it might be useful to circle back again to um, more of the nitty gritty of where, what, what Bill, what has led you to be concerned about that? Because I think that that um, a lot of people need to have, have a grounding in that. So I'm going to go back to this list okay. at this moment. Um, grounded. Grounded, grounded. Uh, okay, so let's get back to social prescribing pathways and nudges, which I understand as the tools that influence people's behavior in order to direct them to desired outcomes. And then I have the word examples, which I'm going to pass to you. Right. So this is related to the, the gamification element, like the gamification of formerly natural life. And there's, there's a video and maybe we can link to it or whatever, however we share it. It's two and a half minutes, so it's short. It's called Meet Kathy. And Kathy, Kathy is your community care coordinator, like in your community hub. And this in this two minute video, it lays out that like this guy, Joe is getting out of prison and they're saying, you know, Joe's outcomes will be better. He is less likely to return to prison, which is exactly a social impact bond. Um, if his wife and child are well and happy, because we all care about the whole family, right? Like we, not that we went in everybody's business, but we care, we care about the wife and child. So um, the wife smokes and the child has asthma. And so the community care coordinator is going to give each of them, um, you know, a personalized plan of uh, self-improvement, right? Because of Joe, right? And because they happen to be in a relationship or a family with, with someone who's, who has been incarcerated, which as we know, in many respects is a a structural problem to deal with labor, globalized labor supplies, right? And it's racialized as well. So the daughter says, you know, here's your, here's your to-do list of all the things to manage your asthma. And a lot of it is connected to documentation in digital systems, whether that's you check in at the doctor's office and you're on an iPad, whether the asthma inhaler has an internet of things sensor attached, you know, whether the child has the electronic health record that is documenting all of this. There's myriad data collection points. And in the video, what they say is when you when you comply, when you go under, they have like a little banner, you've complied and then the nonprofit gets paid and like your social credit score goes up. And so essentially for me, um, and this is, you know, sometimes I just have, you know, I run into something that just lays it out for me. The University of Pennsylvania has created um, is, a, is a major player in the social impact space. Judith Rodin, the former president of Penn, left and be, led the Rockefeller Foundation, and they set up the Global Impact Investment Network. Okay, there's very deep ties to Penn and Wharton, which is the business school. So there's a professor at Wharton. His name is Kevin Wareback, and he is sort of like the wunderkind of you know Wharton. He has this MOOC, and it has tens of thousands of people who look at his online course. And his expertise is in gamification, so gamification and blockchain, because to track you in the game all of those micro contracts, it's not just your physical self, it's your virtual self too. That gamification is all tracked in the ledger, 
Like, did you do the thing we told you to do? And there's an incentivization for the nonprofit to manage you. And all right now, like all of the, many of the major private prison companies are getting into social work. They call it continuum of care, core civic and geo group. They're pivoting into continuum of care pathways because they're building the world as an open air jail because they can track you. The level of incarceration is no longer an ankle bracelet, it's your phone. And then eventually it'll be a biosensor or something like that. You know, So there's this level of control that is happening. So it's like you are turned in, you're placed in a game that someone has decided for you. And they say, these are the rules, do these things. And then we, I think some of us have to question who's making the rules, what are the outcomes and are they for our own good? And who are, who is any of us to dominate other people and say, you must follow these behaviors, which we say are good. Because if you pay attention to history, a lot of the time you realize powerful people make people under their control do things that they say are good that we know are not good or anything but good. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of what these nudges in the gamification, it's choice architecture too, that's the other thing. It's tied to behavioral economics. So Richard Thaler, Cass Sunstein, uh, the nudge unit that, which came out of the UK that Michael Bloomberg brought over to the United States. If you imagine that you put friction in the system, you don't prohibit the wrong choice, but you, you make it more difficult to make the choice that is not desired. And that's where these nudges come in. And that's where the, the contracts, right? Like, well, you could go get that ice cream, even though you're on a pre-diabetic pathway, but you can't take the bus to get there. You're going to have to walk, right? Like, we're not going to stop you from getting the ice cream, but we will make it. And in these smart environments, um, you know, increasingly the other piece of that that Catherine Austin Fitz and, and others have talked about is the, the central the digital currency. If your social benefit payments are all tied to a digital economic system that is integrated in the sensor network, they can turn it on and off and they can make it, they can enforce certain behaviors, which are also, um, the state of Illinois is very far advanced because they, they're in commodities futures trading. And, and they you know have this thought experiment, how do we code nudges into SNAP benefits? So it's not like they're not already planning it. They're, they're planning it. They just have to figure out like one, how do we scale it? And two, how do we make it socially acceptable? And, and, and that's been conditioned, you know, easily since the nineties around welfare to work. Like, oh, you know, these poor people, we're gonna put them on a program to fix them. And if you need support, it's not because the whole system is screwed up and we're living in a world of scarcity by design that doesn't work for most people it's that it's your fault. And if you just behaved properly, it would be okay. Well, Michael Bloomberg, what, 10 or 15 years ago, he simply um, uh, did something to make it illegal for 7-Elevens to um, sell 42 ounce big gulp, um, you know, the great big thing of soda or slushies or whatever, you know? And so that was that long ago. And, you know, it got, it was a little bit of a, um, it got a lot of attention at the time. And I remember at the time, you know, because I, that kind of food, I think is terrible for people. So at the time I might even have thought, oh, well, you know, that sounds good to me, you know, however, I did not have, it's, I think it still seemed a little problematic just to, because it just seemed like, what, you know, how, how's that really helping? Somebody's just going to get a bunch of soda cans and now you're going to have you know the thing that kills seagulls and stuff you know 
floating out in the trash and um yeah but now there there's so much more technology to do that in so much more of a subtle way as you say you know to make it less easy to get that big gulp or to walk to the big gulp or whatever so then and then that question of what really who's making these decisions and and are any of them really getting to the heart of the problem of why people are making those decisions in the first place it just feeds into something that can money can be made off of in one way or another um i'd, I'd like to go from there to blockchain uh and the spatial web Actually, I don't know if, know if I have the space. I'm going to actually hold up a second and close my windows because it's recess next door, which is lovely, but it's a little noisy. So just I'll be right back. I thought I heard some children. Yes, that, which is good. We like children playing, but it's, it is, it is getting loud. Uh, what, what number are we at, Kate? Just out, out of curiosity. What number of what? <laughs> uh, on the 10 points. Yeah, sorry. Wait, wait, on the 10 points. Oh, oh, I don't know. I have a number. I've not numbered them and I've been jumping around. Sorry, Jason. Okay. <laughs> we're just, we're just in the mix. No, we're most, we're most of the way through. Um, I think we only have two or three more. Uh, but so this brings us to blockchain and you just mentioned blockchain. And what I've, what I've written here is still haven't grasped this. And this is, this is tricky because you've you've done so many things on blockchain. Um, I just I've written how it relates to how information about our activities is gathered, stored, and witnessed. Um, so, blockchain. I think I've heard it um, pitched as far as a way to kind of anonymize um, medical information. Uh, but then you're talking about it as a way that uh, your information gets recorded, but then viewed. So that seems to contradict what I've heard about it's a way to make your information anonymous. So if you could, you know, try to make me understand uh, blockchain, sorry that I haven't figured this out so far. No, that's okay. I mean, I think it's, it's complex because for the most part it is um, framed as a currency, right? As a liberatory currency structure and it is a ledger. So if we understand it as an accounting tool um, that fundamentally, so it's, it's keeping track of things. And most people imagine it as keeping track of something that relates to like money, some kind of money system. Keeping, tra keeping track in a centralized digital place. Well, it's actually decentralized. So that's what they say is so wonderful is that it's spread all over all these other computers. That's what I don't, that's what I don't understand. Decentralized, but decentralized meaning everywhere has access you can access it from everywhere is that well it's locked in so it's secure they say it's like once you have a block it's it's locked in with a cryptographic key so so it, it cannot be changed is this is the the premise it can't be tampered can't be tampered with i'm sorry i'm in i'm sorry i'm interjecting no. but i'm just trying to all the points that i'm lost at I just yeah. want to clarify. So it, 
it's it's can't be tampered with. When you say it's locked, it it is invulnerable to tampering. Well, that's what they say. I mean, the reality is is that there's primary chains and often there will be side chains and then there's there are all these intersection points of like your wallet, you know, and you hear a lot of people like running into problems with their digital wallet being hacked is that it's not necessarily superfluous, a perfect system, but they frame it as that it is this permanent system, but it, there are vulnerabilities, shall we say, there are vulnerabilities in it. Um, and it is stored in different servers. So it's not like, oh, it's, it's in one server farm and someone goes in and hacks that and your information is taken. It's spread across many different storage systems so that you would have to hack them all at once and you would never have the power you know, to do that. So that's, so it's saying it's secure, it's decentralized, it's permanent. And most people imagine what they're talking about are representations of what we commonly understand as money value today. Um, the thing is there's whole other sections that are about um, tokens. And that's like when we talked about the mother may I game, right? Do you have a token to put in and enable that to happen? So, so it's also information. And, and my sense is that the digital citizenship, your digital twin dovetails with the push towards electronic government. So your idea of creating a digital identity system is how you will interface with the state, whatever you know, government you happen, happen to be interfacing with, you will have a digital representation that will hold your documentation, right? Your birth certificate, your land ownership, your voting, your health records, your educational credentials. Uh, and this is part of this larger like technocracy. And you know, what are the inputs and what are the outputs? Like all of what the public benefit has put into you will be documented in this ledger. It's like we've put this into you. And, and so the ledger isn't just money, it's all of these other things. And that's what the state of Illinois was looking at. Um, it also will have, so those are big chunks of information. Like I was born, that's a pretty big chunk of information. That's a significant piece, but it's also little bits of data dust that are floating around out there that like fill out the, like say the, the key elements of you are the armature. And then all of the stuff that you do daily in your digital footprint are sort of the filler, right? And then if you imagine almost, you know, an armature structure of a person, a digital twin, a digital version of you, that continually gets filled in at a more and more clear focus, right? Depending on how much more data that you add onto that. And that could be um, anything with these internet of things sensors, right? Um, and, and how you interface, that's part of the social credit scoring system. So all of that is going to be tracked on blockchain. That is the aim. Now, whether they can accomplish that, whether they can scale it, whether they have the energy resources to do all of that cryptography, those are all questions. It's unclear if they are able to actually scale it. But the internet of everything, this spatial web, it all runs on smart contracts, which are part of this blockchain system. So it's, it's much more than simply money. And that's the part of the conversation that I'm trying to force people who are in the Bitcoin space to acknowledge is that it's all also running on a digital infrastructure that again is a militarized surveillance infrastructure even though you want to say it's the white hat version that is emitting frequencies that are very likely to have profound 
negative impacts on natural life on the planet. So if you're going to frame your liberation, but by the way, you have to wear an EMF suit outside and all the bees are going to die, then we have to question, is, the, is this our proper relationship? Is this simply another way of expressing domination over natural systems is through this, this blockchain technology. Um, one, one thing that I, I think I was start, had started to grasp a while back about blockchain is that it is, um, you, have, you have privacy, you know, so yes, all this data, and I, I like your idea of the data dust, you know, filling in your form as, as a digital picture uh, you know, as, as a record. And so, you know, you can, I'm just thinking of explaining this to my 92 year old mother, right. In yeah. a way that would be more, you know, she's extremely smart, but a lot of this is just stuff that has not come on her radar screen. Yeah. Um, so you could liken it perhaps to a file, a filing cabinet, you know, and all of this information gets put in the filing cabinet, but it's like a smart filing cabinet, which really organizes the information in a very clear way. And um, you, you can lock that filing cabinet. So you don't have to show anybody that information, but if you don't have other means, maybe you do have to show that filing cabinet every time you want to go to the grocery store. Right or every time you want, if you want a job, or if you need to have a home and you're reliant on the social services, or if you need to access medicine. So that filing cabinet, um, you know, ostensibly is, uh, you could keep it locked all the time, but then you might die in real time because you're gonna starve or something like right. that. Unless you're very rich and then you never have to ask anybody for anything. Right, and so, and then the other thing about um, what constitutes your, your I, I'm thinking of somebody um, on welfare or unemployment going for their regularly scheduled meetings and talking to a person and explaining, you know, this is what I've been doing, this is why I need this. And, you know, so there's sort of a conversation and an exchange between two humans that would go away and you would just have the accumulated information um, qualifying or disqualifying you for whatever it is you're needing. And it would, and it could force, um, could force you as well, just in the same way that to have a credit score, you need a credit card, right? So, you know, you, ha you have to do, you have to participate in things in order to have access to, you know, to have a mortgage, to look for a mortgage, you need a credit score. And so you can't just have a credit score if your activities, if you can't prove via a credit card that you pay your bills or something like that. Right. So there's all of this, um, uh, there are all of these proofs of good citizenship or, or bad citizenship or things that are interpreted one way or the other that are um, that are going to be re increasingly relied upon as a way to judge whether somebody is a um, good a, a citizen worthy of gaining certain um, 
uh, rewards or necessities. The one piece of this is how it connects to the outcomes-based contracts and the pay for success that we talked about earlier. Because what most people are not talking about is that MIT has a backdoor that allows them to query on encrypted data. So they may not know it is you, but if you are part of a pay for success solution, right? And so I would say um, an example is social emotional learning is a really big thing now, right? In schools. Now we all care about kids' mental health. We care about their behavior because ultimately these powerful individuals want to know who will comply and who won't comply. That you're in middle school and, and you've been screened at being at risk for something. You, you've been given this curriculum and then in your file cabinet, it's been put in there that you got this curriculum when you were 13 or what have you, you know? So say you're 32 
and then you need um, treatment for depression because you've been forced into this global haptic gig economy or trying to navigate that. And then you need a public service to like give you some support. And someone has bet that if they give you this social emotional curriculum, you won't end up being depressed and then there will be a payout later. And there's some global reckoning of all of these ledgers that are increasingly automated. Well, when you come in when you're 32 and you have to do your electronic health record to access a thing, it will pull the token and say, oh, here's the file. Like, and then it will recalibrate these payments to say, oh, well, it was only successful in as far as you got to 32 without needing therapy, right? And there's a financial number tied to that. And then who knows whose investment portfolio your services have been put into in the meantime, right? And there'll, there'll be, you know, like this giant, I mean, that's sort of how I'm imagining it. There's like giant reshuffling of the thing. Say, oh, he actually, this person actually did need some therapy. And, you know, that's the output. And that's this technocracy, this programmed society that we're in. Now, can they actually do it all? I don't know, but they're definitely setting up the infrastructure to allow that to happen. But the therapy won't be with a real person. It will be with a chat bot because the only way of getting the impact verification data will be if it's digital. I mean, for a time you might actually get to talk to a digital real person on Zoom, but then eventually it will be a synthetic person or an avatar person that you emotionally connect with and they'll know because they'll know you and they'll give you the avatar that, you know, it's like that terrible movie. What is it? Her, you know, the guy falls in love with his operating system. You know, that's, that's where that goes. So, um, it's the back door part. It's one, if you're on public assistance, you're going to have to open that cabinet a lot to prove that you got your ice cream and if you walked to get it and whether or not they're going to pay for your diabetic shoes, you know, and then it's also going to be, um, uh, yeah, these, these longer term, the, the, the other piece of this is the impact data <laughs> and this sounds kind of harebrained, but this is, I believe, what is actually happening. There's something called Singularity Net, which is led by Ben Gertzel, who's connected to Hanson Robotics and Sophia the Robot. And all of the impact verification data, both on human beings and poverty management, as well as financializing nature around the climate issue, the impact verification data is being stored. And ultimately, the plan, I think, is to access that through the back end to build machine learning towards triggering the singularity. So as we do all of this impact data, it's not simply just the surveillance and the contracting, but it's actually their imagining is that it's going to build our, our you know, um, generalized artificial intelligence is their goal, is that we will feed this thing our life and then it will come to life on its own. And then it will all be automated. I have a quick question on that. It was came up earlier. Um, it's clear, and you mentioned the symmetry of how we're downloading our consciousness into the machine while we're installing the machine in our bodies. So it's clear how, um, well, one, one aspect of it is, is clear, um, how, how our consciousness seems to be being used as, a, as data to inform AI. But is there a, have you talked about or can you talk about the way in which our bodies are actually being used as because this isn't touched on in the matrix movie right we see how the the bodies in the pods are providing energy for the machine world but what it doesn't show is how our consciousness is actually creating the matrix itself right? so our brains have been turned into organic circuit boards 
So have you have you touched on that, how the human body is being harvested, not just for its life force and its data, but also as an organic uh, um, nodule, nodule, not just a battery, but also a, yeah. a circuit board? So th that piece, like there are some other folks who are more deeply into that that I would recommend. Um, Sophia Smallstorm, she was actually the one who was telling me about like the piezoelectric human energy harvest. And so some of that, like that has been set up to harvest movement off of your body to power wearables. But then the question is like, will it be used for beyond that? Um, and then I, I have a friend who blogs at it's her, the, it's a collective blog called A Piece of Mindful. And um, she blogs under Steffers and, and it's, her focus is specifically sort of the nanotech, the, the militarized nano R&D and like, getting past the blood brain barrier and looking into Giordano and, and how all that functions. She actually has a really fascinating piece of late about Febreze and some starch mo molecule that's used to now being used to like access past the blood brain barrier, which is a very closed system. And there's a very particular way you have to get in there. Um, so I don't have a really solid answer on that, but I think it is quite interesting, even as much as I've learned, cause I didn't come into this from the health space. I mean, like, you know, like I came into it from the schooling space, but again, um, how you're trained up is part of the consciousness construction too, you know, the identity consciousness construction. Um, so there's a lot more to it um, about manifestation and consciousness and, and what we're doing and how the, the nano electronics might be capturing that. I mean, there, there is a big push towards using nanotechnology in water purification now, which I'm highly skeptical of what the implications are to get the nano into the water cycle on a mass level, because this shift that they're trying to push, you know, and in, in from potentially a water-based, water carbon-based life system into a silicon-based, you know, or, the, you know, if this forced evolution is sort of happening is crystallizing us, you know, and, and through maybe some of the nanoparticulates, but that's about as far as I can go on it. Can, can you repeat that blog slowly? Sure. Um, so Steffers uh, blogs at a piece, like a puzzle piece, a piece of mindful. Um, it's a, and it's collective. And then Sophia Smallstorm is the person who was really telling me about the piezoelectric energy. And she has, I think, a, her own website and uh, like a subscription service. But um, you know, it's fascinating because some of the papers actually for the piezoelectric energy harvest are like out of Transylvania. Like you couldn't really make it up, right? <laughs> it does feel like a vampiric system, like a like a parasitic um, vampiric system that is attached to this crazy militarized global financial apparatus. And that's where it's hard to like veer off because um, it people are always like, Allison, this isn't all coordinated. And I'm like, well... I see all of these pieces. Surely the people who are going to Davos, a lot of them at the top see how all the pieces fit, but what is actually driving this thing? Is it an extra, um, you know, that's where I go into like John Trudell, like for me, if, if what they most want is to fragment us across partisanship and identity and all of these things is to, um, if you understood it as a predator system, as a predator energetic system, as keeping things out of balance, and seeking to trans, you know, to turn natural energy into a mechanized system, then the unifying feature of us, you know, I keep framing as a global peace movement against AI, 
you know, that, that is a, a peace movement grounded in, in, in a nat natural systems and, and love really like that's the chaos that, that I think is, is what would be needed to go up against this programmed system. I, I think uh, actually, hold on one second, Alistair, honey, I don't know where your shoes are. You have to ask daddy. Could you close the door, please? I know sweets. They're around somewhere. Can you please close the door? I'm not done yet, hon. All of his shoes are missing. Apparently. <laughs> I um, hear grounding is good. <laughs> it is very good. Um, what Catherine Austin Fitz was talking about this, uh, she said, and she used the words like a vampiric. Uh, yes, so she said something, I hear this great sucking sound, this vampiric um, extraction of data. And as what you were saying, various groups of people trying to get as much data as possible because they're getting the human race to teach the robots to do the human jobs by getting the human race hooked up to software and AI and the cloud. And it's a, and you had put a, a good little progression of trouble here to connect some of these things that you're talking about. So as you started by saying, putting children on blockchain and surveilling them as data. So you've got them, you're surveilling them and you're recording the data. Then the hedge fund markets and human capital that will be applied to those children and managing them, the nudges and all that for a precarious global gig economy with haptic robotics. You know, and they're making money from that and um, people are being forced into certain types of labor. But then they're feeding, so you picture all these children or you know, adults in haptic suits and behavioral data, everything recorded. They'll feed the children's data into the singularity net to try to trigger the singularity to teach the machines to be people. And I think, you know, and that again, that's like, we're all leaping off the Neil Stevenson cliff there. But, you know, it's, uh, when you look at this and you look at the problematic connect, and you look at it not just as that this is, um, these are, it's not just saying, oh, okay, this technology is there and this is where it can go, but you're looking really closely at, at the people and the efforts, the energy that's been put into this and seeing how it connects. And, and also looking at the almost religious, uh, I don't know what would you call it, fervor or something. I mean, is, it was, is singularity, was that Kurtzweil only or was it others as well? Yeah. Was that? Well, actually, I think it was Werner Vinge, huh. who was a professor of computer science and mathematics at um, University of San Diego. And he's actually a science fiction writer. And yeah. he has a really, there's a very compelling book when, when all of the Pokemon Go stuff started happening and I, I was grasping augmented reality and I was like, oh, this is the trial run to see if we're gonna go for this stuff, right? You know, not gonna tell us that it's run by the CIA. And, I, and someone wrote a lovely blog post that said about the ethics of virtual worlds. And, the, and they, they gave a list of books to read and one of them was called Rainbow's End. 
and it was by Vinji. It was yeah. relatively recent, like 20, 2006, yeah. about a near future dystopia of augmented reality in yeah. which it was sort of post-literate world where everyone wears technology and everyone constructs a world. If you think about identity politics, that you actually project the world the way you imagine it. Like if you want to live in a medieval looking world or an anime world that the physicality is there, but it presents differently depending on how you decide to look at it. And meanwhile, the real world just crumbles because nobody cares about what the actual real world is. So, yeah. There's also Michael Moorcock dancers at the end of time. Uh, that is, um, an engineered uh, people engineering over millennia to the point where they can manifest anything in the real world, you know, and it's, it's, uh, but what you don't find, well, I'll let you guys read the book. I'm not going to really worry. Yeah, but I think Vinci, it might've been 93 that he gave the lecture about it, about the singularity. And again, some of people are speculating that if it happens, it will be this decentralized autonomous organization which so, is essentially a corporation written in code on blockchain, that they create a structure, a corporate structure in computer code, and then it runs. So, I, I mean, is the singularity, um, the essence of it, that being the moment, if and when artificial intelligence becomes conscious? Yeah, I think, yeah, self-aware. Self-aware and then can act. Um, and so, but it seems like with the Kurtzfile stuff anyway, it seems like there are there's a an impulse toward making wanting that to happen. And I just think why why would anyone want that to happen? What I mean, so maybe this is just a the the, the uh, logical end to all of this engineering. Maybe, maybe the logical end to all of this engineering, this mentality of engineering and management and imposition and extraction is to make imposition, make management itself its own entity. You know, so it's like we're creating an egregore, right? Like, you know, tulpas and egregore. So an egregore, you have enough people believing in one thing, you, you manifest that. And then it, then it has its own life, right? So you're creating, you're creating a God in some way or something that's going to, and maybe in that way, it makes sense. Because if you're, if you've been living over time with this guiding principle. Oh, oh, this is a horrible thought. You've been living over time with this guiding principle of, you know, management and something that imposes will for a desired outcome. And you're, you're living that and then living it through the decades and centuries until the point where you can actually manifest it as its own conscious entity. Perhaps there is like some disembodied consciousness that has, you know, been operating through in, in your being in your psyche the whole time in order to lead people to the point where they allow it, they release it and allow it to become real. That's horrible. I don't like that thought. 
but is that like happening? people like also the selfish ledger that is actually a really so there's I'm, I'm assuming it's actually real but like it was like a leaked google short film maybe about a six minute film uh where they were sort of projecting sort of a future where your consciousness is uploaded and and saved but that when we talked about filling out the armature your digital armature that that the systems would um find what little bit of data it didn't have about you and figure out what device or thing that they could get you to buy to fill in that gap in the picture. And then they would send an order to a 3D printer and they would print it and then they would price it for you so that they would know you would buy it. And then you would buy it and then you would give the data and then it would fill it all, like continue to fill it out. And it was linked to like, they talked about like Lamarckian genetics, like I guess like changing genetics, like within like an existing person, like through your environment. And yeah, it's, it's, it, but it's, it was, it's based, it's called the selfish ledger and it was all to be tracked on blockchain. That's the ledger, the selfish ledger. And that, um, you know, ultimately your knowledge would sort of collectively go on to these future generations that, that this, it, but it's very mechanical. It's, it's a very mechanical system. And even the framing of selfishness, because I think we are, living in this time of manufactured scarcity and competition like that's what is driving all of the data-driven everything is it's a manufactured worldview that there isn't enough that that people are bad that we have to be all managed within these systems which i don't think is an accurate representation if we were to be able to deal with these oppressive forces that are you know constricting the entire globe like i don't think most people are selfish we just have to be able to manifest a different way so I want to, I want to bring up, um, I want to bring up Jason's, oh, do I have the right? Jason had written something about uh, conspiracies because I, th I think it's very pertinent because I think that, again, a person listening to this thinks like, you know, who is this running this and what are all these they coming and imposing and impact management project what's what's that the impact management project impact management project yeah. 2000 of the world's largest asset holders they're the ones who want the impact data that's imp for sure the imp of the perverse is that yeah well you know in gin the global impact investment network the gin yeah they're very sneaky on how they and then the metrics themselves that rockefeller set up is called iris which on the one hand is the retinal scan iris and it's the eye, the panopticon, but then iris is, I think, one of the Greek nymphs characters, the rainbow, which is sustainable development goals, but it's also like the messenger to the gods. So that's the bridge to the singularity, your sustainability development data. It's your rainbow to the gods, to the AI. All right. Um... All right, you, so Jason writes in 16 Maps of Hell, which I highly recommend. Uh, in, in my own view, the conspiracy debunker is mostly, parentheses mostly correct in dismissing the idea of a hidden clique of puppet masters directing history from behind the scenes, but not because there is no evidence that such cliques exist, parentheses there is rather because they exist not so much as causal agents, but as more deeply concealed effects. They are carriers, if you like, of a quote unquote conspiracy, 
a spiritual, psychological, cultural, social, and political hege hegemony that goes back millennia. At any given time, such cliques may be in the possession of unknown power and influence, but if so, it is only because they are also possessed by it. Mm. And I think that that's, I think that that is a very, uh, for, for me, sensible way of viewing conspiracy is not something where just people are there going, ha, 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 here's what we're going to cook up and here's how we're going to control. But you know, as and in a way to understand how such a broad part of society can be complicit as well in conspiracy because they or we too are, we have these same frameworks within ourselves through which we are understanding the world. But then the people who are the um, stakeholders in terms of who can really profit from them you know, it's not, they, they, they got to that place, you know, and perhaps because of family, but perhaps just because of philosophical, you know, something that they've heard that's resonated. This, this has built who they are and it's built who, how they act. And so, you know, and whether that's, through intentionally traumatizing somebody in order to have them play a certain role or whether it's just by having somebody be a part, somebody being a part of a school system that kind of makes them absorb certain assumptions about how, what reality is and how things are. In this way, the, it becomes like the, the culture breeds and perpetuates the conspiracy within the actors that actually are making it happen in any given moment. That to me is a much more um, palatable way or much more, I would think it would be a more persuasive way of understanding conspiracy for those who say, oh, you're just talking about a bunch of bad guys doing bad things. And that seems unlikely. It's like, no, I'm talking about a, an understanding of the world and how that, how that guides how people behave. One thing uh, that's really apparent in talking to Alison, but it's become more and more apparent to me, uh, is that conspiracy really is the wrong word because conspiracy, uh, by definition, is, is secret and it's criminal. And what we're talking about, well, it may be morally and ethically criminal, but it's not legally criminal. I mean, uh, right? The, the people implementing these agendas make the laws. So they don't even have to break them and whatever. And it's not even secret. I mean, a lot of what Alison's referring to is, as she said, is open documentation. Um, so I think that's very central and that 
the way it's possible for something to appear to us if we're even willing to look at it as a, a great arch conspiracy, which is part of the cover-up in a way, because it makes it hard to get our head around and it makes a lot of in intelligent people reject it. But the reason it looks that way to us is because we've been made complicit with it. So, and the complicity is that we don't see it and we consent to it. So it's not secret and it's not criminal because we've, we've approved it. And so then we can't see it. And when we start to see it, we see it through David Icahn lens, which have been provided by the sort of controlled opposition of a, a counter narrative that actually it, it potentially can lead us to seeing the truth. But in most cases, I think it just corrals people into another kind of blindness. Which I mean, is... it's hard. Like I've had a couple of encounters on like Twitter the last week or so and like two different one was related to second life that hasn't gone away it is going to be this virtual world and and the macarthur foundation that is central to a lot of this and that's insurance money so the actuarial rates um they're part of the badging the digital badging education system and you know woven into the second life and this is someone who's like a disability rights activist right and so they someone tagged me on a post and said i think we should have this great conversation and i was like well like i don't think i don't think i'm the i don't Think I'm the person you want to talk to about this. I'm like, you know, the guy, I'm trying to remember the gentleman who set up the second life, but like he's now in blockchain, he's now in gig labor, he's now like it was very clearly a setup for a certain thing, but this person had felt very um strongly that they were giving people a creative option, especially people who were maybe physically limited, to live out sort of their ideal selves in this virtual space. And so it was like they could not simply process where I was saying that this is a militarized system that is set up to harvest people's data for these larger ends because it was totally inconsistent with how he had structured the narrative of what it was that he was a part of. It's too hard. And I'm not saying this person in any way came into it with bad intentions. It's just they were the, the narrative framing they were built into was very different from what and I said, you know, I just don't think we're probably could fit. And then secondarily, there was someone else who was working in virtual reality and, and this haptic robotics. And they said, well, I'm building it so that we can repair cables under the ocean or whatever safely, right? And so it's this dual use, right? They'll pick the, sure, yeah, you can use it to fix cables under the ocean to run the prison planet, whatever. Like, yeah, I can see that that might be safer rather than sending people deep diving under the sea. But you know that that's, they're taking it to this other level to like sit in a closet. So your kid stocks the, the, you know, mini Mark cooler, you know, this tele-existent Japan robot labor. Um, and again, if you've only been given this one thing, like here's your task, it's very important that you do this task well, and then you execute it. You're not going to be able to necessarily extrapolate from that job that you feel very much satisfaction in doing well, that's going to pivot into this other thing because you actually don't have control over what they do with it once you've built it. They're gonna take it away from you and use it for the other thing. Like, I mean, it sat with me really hard for quite a number of months when I started to realize that like the brain project and the cancer research and the genomics, you know, there's a lot of scary stuff that was being advanced in that about like bioengineering that had nothing to do with curing cancer. You know, it had nothing to do with stopping the causes of cancer and environmental causes it was about building the technologies under a certain cover to allow this next phase to happen. Does that mean that people like studying these very, you know, particular gene sequences and cancer research are 
part of this, you know, no, they're not, but, but there is no incentive, especially once people have student debt and their social relationships and their social circles are set up a certain way to look at, to question. And I found that, so I can't actually participate in most of society these days because I'm not looking to aggressively interrogate people, but I don't fit in anymore. I simply don't fit in anywhere. Yeah. Because yeah. I've come out of the stupid cave. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know what? I didn't quite realize what I was doing. It wasn't like one day I got up and said, I'm leaving this cave. Like I just kept pulling the thread and then eventually I got out and I was like, geez, I can't go back in. I don't work. My brain doesn't work in there anymore. Eggs and bacon, a good full pipe. Pipe, 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 pipe. My garden at twilight. Cakes. Billy's at it again. Billy's at it. Billy's at it again. Billy's at it. Billy's at it again. Billy's wanking again.
That's um I I have a relative who is um who's a writer and editor at a bi-monthly magazine that started at MIT, not the Media Lab, but just at MIT Press. And it's a magazine that I used to really love, as you know, similar, it kind of went farther left than NPR. And then at a certain point I realized, oh no, I don't, I'm not agreeing with a lot of the things that, you know, that they're at the, I'm a lot further along than, than this magazine is now, or, you know, it's just not going into that territory. And it's talking again, like NPR about things that I, I just don't agree with. And um, so it's challenging this person a bit about, um, you know, essentially asking why why haven't you considered this and i think it was naomi wolf got brought up and this person said um you know we we and they used we to describe the people that they uh their um uh, associates and similarly minded people we think she and her followers are crazy. And, and I thought, and I thought, well, you know, Naomi Wolf is, um, you know, first of all, she's a, she's a Rhodes scholar and she has her PhD from Oxford. She doesn't come across to me as crazy. I mean, I guess to somebody who would just think that, oh, that story's, they put the word crazy on it because that's a way to, yeah. to push it away but I don't think that crazy she just you know that's describing she does not seem like a mentally ill person and so she's somebody who does not seem mentally you know in in the throes of a psychosis you know mental mental illness is very problematic term on its own but in the throes of some kind of delusional psychosis I'm not getting that from Naomi Wolf you know um and given her very uh, distinguished background, <clears throat> when she talks about things that are unusual, some people are going to say that's crazy, but I'm going to say that's concerning. Why is this person talking about those things? And, it, and th this, so this relative of mine said, um, he, they think that it comes down to belief. You know, you, some people believe authority, other people wanna believe kind of anti-authority things. And I said, I don't, I don't think that belief uh, adequately explains what leads uh, Glenn Greenwald, for instance, to start sounding like a Tucker Carlson because this person, Tucker Car Carson, right? That's because uh, this person also used that as an example. Glenn Greenwald used to be this great liberal something, and now he sounds like Tucker Car Carson. And I was thinking, well, don't you? Doesn't that make you curious? <laughs> right. But it, it's, it's just curious. like, oh no, Glenn Greenwald, go away! You're 
Tucker Carlson now. And, but to me, that just makes it more concerning. Why would somebody who was there get to there? And it's, uh, I, I think then what I also said was, you know, if, if you started talking about these things or becoming interested in these things, your we mm-hmm. patriots would think you were crazy too. And I think that that is for many people, um, a zone where that prevents them from going any further too, because it's just, it's going to be the end of career, a career. You know, you see a a few people who've said, okay, I'm putting my career aside. I'm just going forward because this message is important. But for many people, they can't, or don't feel that they can risk that. And it's, and it is also leaving behind your social connections too. And, and, and also, and my husband pointed out, which I think is very important, it is um, leaving behind your identity, your ego. And that, you know, that's a, a, a death of, of what you conceive of as being yourself. So be able I, to construct it, yeah. Because we construct it, right? And and so so for somebody like Jason, you know, he and he's um, involved, and I too, with uh, the Dave Oshana that is somebody who talks about a lot about. Um, just the constructed identity and how that's constructed from everything, everything, everything around and how important it is to, um, to, become, to, to become embodied as a way to at least see. And Zen Buddhism comes to this very much too. It's a way to at least see what the identity is and understand that as you know, nice of a project it might be, it's still something that's been constructed. And to get to a place where um, where one is able to <clears throat> interface, interact and see what what is around one in a way that's not through a lens or through your own little, you know, through your own viewfinder. And so I think that I, I've had a, a long background with Zen meditation. I mean, not I'm not uh, super. Um, I'm not very good at being diligent and dedicated. So it's kind of been a this makes sense. Okay, well no, now I'm going to go off and do that. Okay, this makes sense. But um, I think that that's something that resonates very much with me and probably you know, seeing Jason's writings and what he's talked about has resonated too. The importance of finding, finding your own, uh, 
of being able to be in the world and interact with the world, not as an avatar, even if that avatar is only your identity, even if that's not a screen avatar, it's just your identity avatar. And that connects with <clears throat> what you have been coming around to. I think you'd mentioned um, Braiding Sweetgrass, right? Which is a book that I've just, I've, I have, and I've started here and there. And, you know, so it's, it's one of those things I pick and I say, yeah, yeah, that all sounds good, but I haven't went, gone too farther and too far into it. Um, it's, it makes me think of traditional societies, traditional cultures that approach their place in the world more from feeling a part of everything mm -hmm. and being able to just take, take your place and learn, take your place and learn it, it, that interaction, the communication and to, I mean, it, it's quite the opposite of impositional technocratic uh, approach to being and dwelling in the world. And it's, uh, it, it just resonates with me. It resonates powerfully. There's a, did, have you ever, have you read um, uh, Becoming Native to This Place? No. It's Wes Jack, Jackson, Wes Jackson, who's um, it's, it's some associate friend of Wendell Berry too. I don't know if you know Wendell Berry talks about the importance of, okay, we came here in a certain way, but now we have to, now we have to actually be in our environment and in this place in a way that is part of this place. And so his approach is going and finding, and Jason would find this interesting, finding old abandoned towns, rural towns and, or a town and getting people together to just buy it, buy it up and dwell in it. You know, just these abandoned places in the middle of nowhere and then find out, okay, how can we be people in an environment that's not imposing, imposing our will here and not, not engineering some kind of a, uh, some kind of a plan and an in intention onto it. Yeah. Uh, so your, the work, the, the efforts that you're doing, and I saw your um, New York uh, happening on, um, as you posted it, uh, was it a week or two ago? And just a number of people who are what I would think of as the white witches. And I think we're dealing with magic here. We're dealing with magic on both sides. You're dealing with what you might think of as dark magic, which is the impositional magic and control, and then perhaps I now want to use black, dark, and light. That's not good, definitely. But you know, you're dealing with magic that is intended to impose impose desire and will and control. And then on the other hand, the magic of um, of being able to try and affect some change, but only in so far as the universe agrees to that or will allow that. And so it's, it's, an, it's an interactive 
kind of ritual. And I, I feel that that's what you, you, that's what you've been being involved in with the, with the dandelions and the, that's funny. Um, I don't think people know what to make of me. I mean, it's hard because I don't have like, we, we don't, I don't come from a place of ritual. I'm pretty a religious, you know, I sort of waspy growing up, but not, and it feels like we've lost the grounding. Right. And, and that's, you know, what Robin Wall Kimmerer speaks of is the learning from the other beings being part of this ecosystem, which is the counter to the, the Huntsman family of Utah that made their, their money and petrochemicals and styrofoam that later, you know, parlayed it into biotech and cancer genomic research. And now, you know, oh, Utah is the bee state. And, you know, we're talking about, well, maybe we could crisper up the bees to make them live in the pollution, right? Like, wouldn't that be great? We'll just crisper up the bees to live in the toxic environment rather than to stop the toxic environment. And so like just navigating this, there's this, you know, balancing, balancing between like individual agency and like reciprocity within community. And I think that's one of the things I struggle with because a lot of folks are like the counterpoint to technocracy. People talk about communitarianism, this Amitai Itzioni guy and like the co-optation of that. And like, I'm just very cautious because I think we both need to be able to, um, you know, follow our own internal compass, but also we're just like the go alone piece, I don't think is the right direction either. It has to be as part in relationship in like in a, in a intentional relationship, a reciprocal relationship to people and the environments. And, um, so, you know, I struggle with how do, how do we, what language do we use to talk about it? Because so much of it has comes with baggage, right. It comes up with like people taking words in certain directions or overlaying pieces on it. But, um, you know, one of Kimura's things that really resonated is like, know your gifts and how to give them. Like, what if we actually had a world that was respectful of these larger relationships, a place, <laughs> and we could all use our gifts. I mean, I think that's the thing that's so, you know, when you imagine someone sitting in a haptic suit in a closet, stocking a mini fridge in a convenience store like that's not a gift that's not somebody's gift to do that and what would what place the world would be if we could all find a way to sustain our to give our gifts and sustain our families ourselves and our families in ways that were like really meaningfully sustainable and reciprocal like to me that's the angle and to but we can't actually get there unless we can realize what we're in now is broken and what we need to get to is something different. And it has to, it's not just a retrenchment. It's actually a different structure. I think it's also important to not be overwhelmed with the breadth of the, what we think of as the problem, because then that can lead to paralysis and, you know, just, uh, just, vibrating in place and not being able to go anywhere. So I, I do think when you talk about using, using your gifts, I think one thing that I've had a hard time with is um, thinking, you know, all right, well, so I'm here in the country and it's a, it's a village, it's a village in the country, but I think, okay, I can't, I can't make my own little paradise because that's selfish and I'll just be being selfish. But then the thought that um, 
maybe that is something that can be a place to start because be, being able to enact and live, yeah. You know, because what would what would stop me is well, that's not helping somebody in in a city. That's not helping. It's not helping anybody. But not doing anything is help. Not is helping even less, right? So if I can make a start by just digging in and trying to embody and inhabit the world in a way that is, um, that feels right, mm -hmm. then that perhaps can grow. And, you know, as connections are made and perhaps can be a teaching, you can perform a teaching um, mechanism. Um, and also just approaching it in a way to see what, what is feels intuitively or bodily right versus what's what I would be getting signals from myself to say, no, this isn't, this isn't right. Because we think about how we've gotten to where we are and it's intention, intention as good as it is. Yeah, I mean, it's that old road to hell adage, which I always, think of as being like, ah, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah. You know, it is paved with good intentions, partly paved with bad intentions too. I think that's the, that's the key part. You know, it's not, it's, it's like, maybe those are, maybe it's mortared with good intentions and paved with bad ones or something. But um, I think to not feel, to not feel, uh, like there's like one can't do anything because one cannot do enough soon enough. I think we can all take steps. And I yeah. think that, I think that the, the dandelions are a lovely, lovely way to start that. And it's almost like strewing, uh, seeds for the birds. It's, um, you know, it's something very, very simple but very um, po both poetic and truly powerful. I mean, the seeds are gonna grow into, <laughs> grow into dandelions. It's just understanding where, where we can put our efforts. I think that Jason is uh, at that place now too, and that trying to figure out what, um, what form this all takes. You've talked about making, your um what do you call it your secular monastery well that was more michelle's thing but i was i was in support of it i am in support of it um i wanted to say i mean in response to what kate was saying there which hopefully will lead into the the nitty-gritty which she was referring to at the end but that um You know, when we start to pull back and try and see what's going on, as Alison's been doing with her work and I've been doing with my work and, and Kate's been working on in her way, um, it can definitely get overwhelming and very daunting at the socio-political level, the parapolitical. And it is so dark, but 
Well, two things. One, as I see the function of seeing how bad things are is, is to provide us with the impetus to move toward the good. Right? The more clearly we see the, the evil, uh, not only the, the more will we be motivated to move and orient, orientate with the good, but also we'll be able to locate it more easily because it's not that. Right? <laughs> um, but the other thing is, is that um, to keep pulling back, like when we're seeing the socio-political and even the hidden, the parapolitical and even the metaphysical dark, which I think we have to get into that even if we haven't today, but certain point when you're mapping hell, you, you end up, it's literally hell, right? There is a metaphysical aspect here, um, but it doesn't end there. You keep, because once you start seeing the metaphysical evil, well, you see there's metaphysical good there. And, and in the same way that, you see the complexity of, of, of society that's been going on for hundreds and thousands, even thousands of years, this, this agenda, um, it's embedded in nature, the earth and, and the planets even. It's a bit harder to know what's going on there because it all comes from NASA and I don't trust NASA, but you know, there's something out there, right? We can see the stars. So um, that like nature is, is okay it's not fine I and mean, we've done a good job we whatever something's done a good job messing up nature and, and the bees and all the rest of it but still you know nature's still here right it's still it's not it's not really in danger i don't believe uh so that's that's really essential i think that the and i and i think that there's a trick here in if that we start looking at the socio-political and the world, and we've got all this information, all this media, this global village. I think it tricks us into uh, a certain certain perspectives and certain interpretations that trigger our nervous system in ways we can't handle. With we can't handle. We're not actually biologically designed to interact with billions of people or to empathize with billions of people or to think about solving problems that involve billions of people. We just can't do it. So I think there's a trick in there. There's even a risk that us three having a conversation like we have today could actually play into that manipulation, which is that, that if, we, if we, it's information weaponized, if we get too much knowledge too much about what's going on it just paralyzes and and like kate's feeling what do we do about it well the answer is nothing essentially i mean nothing directly because as again as kate's been saying well it's it's that desire to try and fix and reform society that is behind the mess we're in already like every you know every bad decision was motivated was justified and even perhaps motivated by the you know the drive the goal of improving previous mess ups right so it just constantly replicates in that way so the, so what i've found is that uh actually focusing on our own certainly our own nervous system I and mean, really local our own bodies, our own harmony with our bodies, our breathing, and all that stuff. Uh, but e but it, even you can extend it out to your own backyard, as the Jordan Peterson thing, or your own bedroom. But but uh, in my case, renovating a house and then running a thrift store. What I've been, what I found out is is that uh, there is a natural, inherent, innate ethics to being human just as there is to being a bee or a bird, right? The birds and the bees, they, they know how to do it and they don't sin. They don't, they don't 
bring distortion into reality. They don't pollute. Um, so human beings, we have a, just a natural sense of what's ethical that predates ethics. And so I found this running a thrift store that I never, I never approached it with so, socialist principles. I rejected, you know, my my parenting. I've rejected all ideologies as far as I've been able to. Uh, so it wasn't about helping the poor. It was just how how is this going to work best? But you're running a thrift store. You're serving the poor. Well, you you want to treat them well, and you and then you have homeless people, and they need a blanket. Of course, I'm going to give them a blanket. I'm not going to say where's your two dollars. It's just a natural human response. And even to the point of you know, people coming, really dealing with difficult people, you, you just find out eventually uh, that the only way to get along is to cooperate. And cooperating means helping people who, who need help and, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm saying that there can be an ideology that's, that's, that's cobbled out of that or imposed on that. And that, that it just doesn't, it's no substitute it's a counterfeit when we turn it into an ideology or a philosophy but that natural innate way of being in the world um is right there and 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 this is even like we began starting talking about community and even community building and i wanted to say even then that my sense when i was working in a small town and with a thrift store that I, I was tempted to use that term community building, but I just instinctively felt it's wrong because of it's impositional. Like I don't want to build something. I want to discover something. So I, I, I have this insight, if you will, it's, it's back to fairy law. There was this expression the invis- in the invisible Commonwealth was one of the names for the fairies that uh, so an invisible community it's discovering a community that already exists, that we're already part of a natural and a, well, an invisible, let's say, I don't want to say supernatural because that I don't like that kind of framing, but it, it's magical. It's metaphysical community. We're part of it. So rather than trying to build something, it's more like a um, excavation. It's there. Like, can we clear away the, 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 you know the crust and the cultural overlay and get back to something that's what what I'm that's what I've been discovering and that's what I'm involved in now or at least on the on the verge of and the metaphor well it wasn't the metaphor the example that Kate brought up of the ren- finding an old village and re- renovating it is literally what we're trying to do we even looked at one today but it's also the perfect metaphor again, because it's not what 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 I hope to do now is to find a property in nature, to find the right part of nature that welcomes me and that has a property on it that was built by people who, who are already sufficiently in harmony with nature, that it's got it's the right foundation. And then the building itself will tell me what it wants. And I don't mean that in some metaphysical fancy way. It's just like, oh, well, this could, this would be better. And that, it's a reciprocal relationship. And 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 to me, that's that's the um, that's this mysterious middle way where we're not passive. We're really engaged, like being a gardener. Like maybe humanity's role is to be the gardener, and maybe you know having dominion over the beasts of the field and being fruitful. You know, the original decree of of the Bible, it, it wasn't a bad idea. It's just that we've come so far from it, it looks as though, oh, it was bad from the start. 
but no, maybe the seed of what's gone really horribly wrong now was, you know, it, uh, we just, we, we took a wrong step really very early on. Right? <laughs> but, but the original uh, impetus was, yeah, to be, to be an active, dynamic, fully engaged in a, 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 um, a relationship with nature that was different than the other animals. I guess that's all I can say. Like we human beings, we're not just, uh, there's something here where we can actually improve on nature. You see, this is the, that's where I say it. it. It looks like that's just a terrible idea. But if you just think of a gardener, that's not a bad thing. If you, if you, if you prune and you, you know, you push back the thorns so that you can pick the brambles and right, you can actually make a garden. You can make you know uh, the wilderness into a garden, and I don't I don't feel that that was a bad idea. I just feel we've come so far away from it that we have to go all the way back to the beginning, pretty much. Which is uh, well, I'm slightly contradicting myself because I don't want to build a house from scratch. I feel as though my ancestors knew what they were doing a bit a lot better. So if I just go back a couple of hundred years or even just a hundred years before it really started accelerating into this transhumanist thing. Um, and they, they build these beautiful stone buildings here that they last, that's built to last hundreds of years, but they're, they're just left to ruin here. I mean, it's because people are all moving to the smart, the cities that will be smart cities. And this whole area in Galicia is, is underpopulated which makes it the perfect uh, place for, for somebody like myself. And um, so that's, that's the plan anyway. Um, and I, yes, I do hope it, would, it could expand into something larger, hence finding a village so more people could join and, and, and transform it as well uh, if they want to. But for me, it has to start I'm just a guy with his wife and a cat, just trying to find a place to live. I've got no grand, you know, grand plans. I'm not trying to create the fifth right that will last a thousand years. And right, I mean, there is part of me that's hoping that there's some kind of spiritual movement. But I know that as soon as it, it gets uh, uh, formalized by human beings, I know that it, it goes wrong. So I just have to. I just have to focus on you know, my own personal needs and allow, I mean, we're, we're part of a system. I think if we really, really listen to our own instincts and intuitions and needs and serve them, uh, then we end up serving others. I just think it's, it's inevitable. Crystal clearness of that summer morning 
two lines of sulfate sparkled on the glass. The same thing happened with that echo as with what happened in my heart. I'll take a free ride on a wooden horse that's going round and round and up and down. Don't ask me to give up my Polish dreams. I ought to know just who I am. Seems to me like you've just had a win. I'll sing all night, I'm a lady girl. The rich rise early, the poor sleep late. That door's all open, but the wrong ones do. Why waste time waiting? Just walk on through. Take this pill and wash it down. Bring out about discovering the community or whatever that ended like and Kate all just being quiet enough to see to see it because I think it's there I mean just this past year has been so many connecting with people that I you know that you're meant to meet you know like you you're, you meet someone and you never and they're like oh well we're supposed to meet now <laughs> like this is like how it was supposed to come together even though it might be somebody that unexpectedly like wouldn't necessarily fit a profile of the person you might think 
for the kinds of people you would meet. You're like, oh yeah, we're supposed to have this conversation. We're supposed to connect. But part of it, I think, is an invitation, like being vulnerable enough or open enough to kind of like step out. Because if we all just stay huddled up, then we never open up to the discovery part, you know? And I don't know. I just, I, I love the idea that it's out there, but you have to be vulnerable to risk to just do that discovery, you know, and, and humble enough to sort of, and quiet enough to see it, you know, and, and to listen to your instincts about it. Well, so one of my problems uh, is is how to find the people in, in away from the technology, because currently yeah. most of the connections we're making are through the technology. And it's wonderful you know, to, to find these people, but I want to be here <laughs> together. I, at a certain point, I feel there's, and I just blogged about this, I feel there's, there's less and less time and there's more and more of an imperative for those of us who are becoming aware of the malevolent nature of society to, to, to disconnect and disinvest from it. And that would include the technology. At a certain point, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Steiner, but it's Aramanic that, that <coughs> the spell of the technology is, is sweeping us all away. So I think it's going to be, and based on Alison's, your model as well, there's going to be less and less possibility of using the technology without being used by it. We're, we're being co-opted, right? Our life force, our ideas, our, our, our wishes, they're all being uh, co-opted by it. So, so yeah, I feel as though we need to, those of us who are connecting, we need to find ways <coughs> to bring it away from keyboard huh? into the real. It's hard when your family isn't on the same page though, that's the hard thing. I, I think what you said earlier when you were talking about that, um, when I first was presenting uh, a lot of this and, and your, your work to my husband, his first, um, his first instinct was, uh, if this is all how it is, if this is all happening, I can't, it's, this is overwhelming. I can't do anything about it. It's just, just going to shut me down. Mm -hmm. I'm shutting. I, this is because he had, I think, just immediately such a feeling of um, stress about the, the problems that um, his instinct was to look away it, with the acknowledgement that, yeah, this all seems pretty, pretty likely, no thank you. Yeah. And so, um, however, you know, since then, I mean, I mean I, perhaps, and his first, I, I feel a lot of concern from him for me, you know, whenever I'd be looking listening to something, oh, you're the, you know, you're just going to stress yourself out. You're listening to that again. And I realized, you know, I, I really wasn't back and forth on Facebook would stress me out. Right. That, that was very stressful, but listening to um, what you'd have to say uh, and some various other sources were not stressful for me. It was more, um, feeling like, I mean, I'm kind of a worst case scenario 
sort of person. I'd like to feel prepared for uh, things that might come up, you know, whether that's a small, sometimes that can be a small thing. Sometimes that can be a big thing. So I want to know my environment. And so when I hear people talking about things that resonate with me and not every dire warning resonates with me, but when it's something that seems you know, that does resonate, I, I want to listen because then I have the feeling of, okay, you know, so I'm understanding that this is a, a poisonous spider that I didn't know lived in attics in my region. And, and now I'm aware of it. And I know that when I open a blanket, I should shake it out first outside or, you know, whatever that makes me feel better. Yeah. That, you know, and to, if I just had a sense of there might be poisonous spiders and I just, I would not to say, no, no, then I'd just be afraid of the poisonous spiders. So I want to know how to deal with the poisonous spiders. And so I think perhaps over time, maybe he noticed that, you know, this wasn't, did not seem to be making me all crazy, but this was just something that I was um, paying attention to. And perhaps talking sense about. And, um, you know, he's not uh, now, um, he doesn't look into these things with my same, and I mean, I only put as much time into it as I can, and I've got two young boys, so there's priorities there. But, you know, I look into things to a certain degree and orient myself, I'm orienting myself this is how I think about it. And so I think that he has over time been feeling that he can do the same thing without getting, without shutting down or being overwhelmed with like that. <laughs> what am I going to do? How, how, you know, I can't do anything. Ah, I don't want to know about it. Let's just pretend la 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 la. And so, but it is, um, I do, I do think at least, I mean, maybe it's just because I have an exceptional husband, but uh, my hope is that over time, most people, and at least most people and families will understand when, you know, when they see, they, they understand that their family member or this person who speaks or their friend, you know, doesn't seem like they're psychotic. <laughs> they might start to pay more attention. And also, but I think that the very important part of that, and that that person also isn't going crazy with fear and panic because it's the tinfoil hat thing, right? That's right. the that's the image. The person with the tinfoil hat on their head, because uh, you know they're they're beaming my thoughts, you know they're taking my thoughts or they're putting thoughts in my head, and oh, I'm gonna have a tinfoil hat. You know that's the image of somebody like that, and it's a fearful image. You know something that's, but when you see it, does not involve tinfoil hats. It just involves packages of dandelions. Packages <laughs> of dandelions, right? Yeah. And conversations and connections. And it is really has more to do with 
inhabiting the world by paying attention and listening. And that's what I think maybe people are afraid to do. Maybe they're afraid, they're afraid to listen because what they are hearing is, is potentially going to destroy everything that they felt was safe. Because we all want to feel safe. I mean, that's the thing. We all want to feel like there's, you know, our kids are going to be good and that it's going to get better. And there, there's clear expectations, right? I mean, I think that's part of the thing. We were in one game. We were all trained for one game and the rules and, and many of us were rewarded, you know, for complying within the game. And some of us weren't, but, you know, like, and then we played the game like we were supposed to play it, darn it. It's not fair that when you're 50, they change the rules, you know, like we're not ready to change the rules. And um, so, yeah, it's better to go on to thinking that we're in the other game, but, um, and not everyone is going to be able to do it. I get that. Not everyone can, but those of us who can, like, I think energetically, there is something about the paying attention and and the mending, like how does one begin to, in small ways? Because the mending happens in small ways and it happens intimately. You know, it's not like we're, we're planning the solstice thing, you know, in New York. And, you know, the, the imperative is sort of big. And I said, you know, I don't know that that's the thing. I mean, not that we want it to be exclusive, but like, I think that our, you know, not that we would have success metrics, but what this looks like is not necessarily, it doesn't have to be big to be successful. It can just be relatively small group of people with intention to do the thing, to do this work. Um, we have to decondition ourselves from what what we think engaging in this process looks like. I don't know that always has to be big and over the top. It could be intimate. Some of these things can happen in, in an intimate scale. So um, yeah, don't be afraid to, to take the first step because even my silly dandelion idea, really, it just came to me. I can't quite say it in the shower, but like when it was just like the dandelion, I'm, I'm going to put this out there. The da- look at it. Oh, that, okay. Yes. It's definitely the dandelion. And then people, they could do that. They could send me dandelions. I mean, I'm, I'm actually kind of appalled at how expensive the postage is for packages. So I'm really sorry about that folks. Like some people like put a lot of money into, you know, but like someone sent me a card from Switzerland, you know, one day, like our couple dandelions in a postcard from the Rhinefall. Like that was pretty amazing. It does, it's not the quantity. I mean, all the quantities lovely, you know, like it was, all, it, 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 they arrived in all different ways. You know, you were the first one who gave me all fluff, which was amazing <laughs> in the painting, but it, it gave people an invitation to be part of a community that is somewhat hybrid between the online and the offline. Like there was some material connection that um, I do think that is related to signals intelligence. I, I don't know, I can't say with, I'm no expert in this, but the Bloomberg, the electrical engineering, there's some waveform. I don't know if that's the egregore. There's some waveform that is, is this dominating waveform. And then I think I sort of picture the dan- people out picking dandelions all over the country, like disrupting the waveform. Maybe Disrupt- 
for an hour, you know, whatever. And then they go to the post office and it disrupts the waveform a little bit there. And then it makes it way and it sits on my sideboard for three weeks. And then we take it to New York and we disrupt it some more. And eventually all of this breaking, like might make space for this other thing to come through, right? And none of it's too big. None of those things are too big to do one person and to be feel part of a community of doing things. And, and it, and there's no wrong way to do it. I don't think like if you're doing it in a, in a like a caring way, there it's like, we're going to do it wrong. Do the dandelion thing wrong. There's no expectation. It just comes. And then it unfolds dandelion, honey. I know exactly what to do with this dandelion, honey. We will leave it for the ancestors under the tree at the African burial ground. That's what we will do with the sunny on the bread. And, Oh, you know, we, we have, um, you know, these different pieces. Oh, the dandelions, you know, were blown over at City College. Well, we'll put mugwort in there and we'll make that the thing. And then that's the gift that was given. And you just roll with it. And, you know, for someone who's really identified with like following and checking all the boxes, it's kind of freeing to feel like, let's just see what happens next. Is that discovery that you talked about? How do you discover that community? You, You just step back and let happen. Well, you're, you're freeing yourself at the same time, you know, yeah. and that's getting to the, the internal because the external is the internal, you know, and we can see what is it, what is it that is bothering me about that? Okay. Where is that in here? And that's where, that's where it really opens up and it's happening. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing to be a part of. Yeah. And it gives you agency and it makes it less scary. Because like you said, nature, it's going to be okay. The nature part, you know, the dandelions, they're out there. It's like a meditation. Now people say, every time I see a dandelion, it like, it brings up, you know, in this world of meme culture, right? Like the viral messaging of this fear stuff. And that's something I'm very concerned about within people who are you know, presenting alternate framing to this narrative is that it too is becoming embedded in this fear structure, right? Which is, again, I'm not saying to be oblivious to things that really you should be paying attention to, but don't fall into it totally, right? Like it's, it's the acknowledging of it, but then the, the finding some other way through, that there is a way through, there is going to be a way through. We just have to um, enable each other to, to walk that road through it. Yeah. And, and to find it, to find it as we go along, to not enge- to not try and engineer that. Yeah, it's not a pathway. No. <laughs> it's not an internet body's pathway. No pathways here. No smart contracts on the um, the road to the valley of love. <laughs> <laughs> Can
glee.